Welcome to episode number 43 of the Four Animals for Earth podcast, inspiration for the eco-warrior with Ehud Sperling. Connect with your imagination. Don't allow other people's ideas and formulations to crowd out your own in- internal navigation system, your own internal sense of who you are, and your own ability to imagine a future for yourself. So that was Ehud Sperling. He's the founder and president of Inner Traditions International, which is one of the world's largest publishers of books on spirituality, religion, and alternative health. If you guys remember back in episode 15, Nicholas Pearson came on to talk to me about crystals and Reiki. He's the author of the book called Crystal Basics, and he told us about his theory of why crystals physically heal our bodies. And he also talked to me a lot about how we can ethically source crystals. Ehud is his publisher and Ehud's wife is Dr. Vatsala Sperling, who is also going to be coming on the show in a couple of weeks to talk about her fabulous book called The Ayurvedic Reset Diet. Um, So look for that. That'll be out in a couple of weeks. So Ehud came on today to talk to me about their reforestation project that they're doing in Costa Rica. They bought property, and on that property, they are planting trees native to the rainforest right there. So their property actually lines up, matches up to rainforest that is currently untouched. But their property, the rainforest, was demolished, you know, quite a few years back to create farmland. So now they are actually replanting species of native trees and bringing back native species of animals, and it's just such a cool project in that area. It's called Hacienda Rio Cote, and we could actually go visit and help them plant trees and be a part of the project. So for that information uh, on how you can book a visit, you'll find that in the show notes. The day that Ehud and I got together for this interview, I had actually been feeling really down. It was about a month ago, and uh, I was. it was one of the days where I just felt defeated. And this happens to me Often, honestly, um, living in this space where I'm constantly trying to be a voice for animals and sustainability, I sometimes feel like um, I'm just living my life hard, <laughs> making every decision difficult every day. And um, and sometimes it's overwhelming. And I happen to just feel kind of overwhelmed and feel like, I really wasn't making a difference um, when I happened to sit down with Ehud for the interview. And I have to tell you guys, by the end of it, I felt so excited and so inspired and just so ready to go again because his story is that he really has been on the forefront of all of these topics that get into thinking about how connected we are with animals and with the earth and with each other and with that that is greater than us. And he's been talking about these things for years. His publishing company is nearly 50 years old, so he has seen a lot. And he talks about how he feels it's effective to drive change and inspire change. And he talks about how Sometimes things are considered weird or off by the mainstream public, but you still have to share them and you still have to get them out there because that's how they eventually make it into mainstream is by us all sharing the creative ideas that come up for us. And he's got some more inspirational nuggets of wisdom in this. Um, 
So today, you'll notice that this interview is formatted a little different. I do not talk in this interview, so even though I did originally, I ended up taking out the parts where I comment and ask questions because I feel like it took away from the cadence of what Ehud was saying, and I think he just has such a wealth of knowledge and inspiration to share with us that I didn't want to take away from it. So it's broken up into 12 little sections of information that he shared with music transitions between them. I captured my favorite quotes of what he said, as well as links to more info about some of the different topics that he covers in the show notes. You can find those at fouranimalsforearth.com slash podcast slash 43. The simple action for today's episode is to plant a tree or a garden. We have heard this in so many episodes on this show from different people who swear by just getting outside and getting your hands in the dirt and physically connecting with Mother Earth. And the cool thing about that is that you're giving back to future generations by planting something. So plant a tree or a garden or a plant or a flower, just something. That's our simple action for today. All right, here we go. Hi there, this is Brandy, and you're listening to the Four Animals for Earth podcast. This is a space where we inspire each other to take small steps every day to live a more conscious life, helping animals and the planet while we do it. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's all take a deep breath and let's get started. Books have a life of their own. They have uh, they have their own nature and they find their own way into the world. So our job is to give them birth and give them a good uh, a good um, send off into the world. And then uh, you, whether you're reading in your library or Barnes and Nobles or your local book bookshop, uh, you're making connection with the inner traditions in the sense that what we've always strived to do is mine the traditions of the world for their inner qualities and bring those inner qualities out in, in the form of books. What's happened, um, you might say, is, uh, is that we went from the oral tradition, which to my mind is the, is the most uh, enhanced way of uh, sharing uh, knowledge, to, um, to a culture where the oral tradition has been diminished. And that happened over centuries, right? Or millennial, really. And uh, the book came into being, in my view, as a way to preserve this oral tradition uh, and the storytelling that was part of the oral tradition before uh, written language and before the printing press. We've always, as, as a um, species, if you will, had this need to tell each other's stories. And I would say that uh, what makes us uniquely human is this desire to tell each other's stories. So for me, it's this ongoing uh, tradition of storytelling that I'm engaged in. And in my particular publishing program, I'm interested in stories that uh, help people grow uh, internally, spiritually, as well as help them uh, manage and uh, activate the most extraordinary piece of technology that we have, which is our bodies. So, you know, people learn how to, you know, like something, uh, put it on Facebook, set up a website, et cetera. But the most sophisticated piece of technology that we encounter uh, uh, in our day-to-day -day life is our own body. 
Okay, so uh, there's a technology for harnessing and activating the potentials of the body. And it's been known since the beginning of time. And you have traditions like yoga that have codified various techniques, right? Right now, there's a, there's a big um, trend in um, ice bathing. You might've heard about that. People jumping into freezing water and, and bi they call it biohacking and trying to uh, activate the higher potential of the human body. Well, certainly if you jump into freezing water, it's gonna focus your attention and remove extraneous thoughts. Uh, but there are other ways of doing that as well. In my case, my journey had, 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 had to uh, traverse the 1960s. And I went from uh, being a science and math major to being a dropout, uh, to a searcher for the mysteries of life. And uh, that period of time in the 1960s, there was this desire really to uh, challenge and question everything and try to find the truth of our, our way of being in the world. Because a lot of things weren't working out. You know, we had the war in, in Vietnam. I remember as a high school student going to Harlem after the riots in Harlem, grew up in New York uh, to help clean up. There was a lot of social unrest, but at the same time, there was this vision of a potential for a new humanity, you know, which was, uh, um, its slogans were things like peace and love, right? Uh, and, and, and flower power, right? So I actually have never changed from those perspectives. I'm still your basic peace and love guy. And, uh, and, and I believe in the, uh, the power of flowers. And uh, in fact, we published the first book on aromatherapy in the English language, which is on the healing and uh, medicinal uh, properties of the essential oils of flowers. So um, I'm, a big, I'm a big believer in... Um, uh, nature's uh, information and our uh, ability to access the information that nature provides us both in terms of our uh, most fundamentally our DNA. Uh, when you think about that as a uh, quality of the human condition, well, you have, you have this uh, mathematical formula that contains more information than all the computers in the entire world tied together. And that's just in one single cell of your body. Oh my God. So uh, don't try to impress me with uh, Zoom or Skype or uh, you know, artificial intelligence or uh, uh, computing power in general. Uh, it's nothing in front of the majesty and the mystery of the human body. And uh, in terms of the spirituality of the world and your uh, your desire to remind people of the importance of animals and uh, the natural environment, I would say that the spirituality of the world is based on its diversity. So as you remove species, you're removing the spirituality. We don't have the ability as human beings to actually add anything. All we have the ability to do is take and recombine what's given. And what's, what was given to us uh, is our place in this ecosystem and its dynamic diversity is what has sustained it for millions and millions of years. And it's that diversity that is actually the signature of divinity, the signature of our spirituality.
So anything that reduces diversity uh, in terms of plants and animals, in my view, is anti-humanity. It's not for the, the human, human condition. And we're in a very uh, unusual situation as a species where we're the only uh, creatures on earth that really uh, can work so energetically against our best interests. So, so, you know, at the same time, we need to have the ability to be free and explore our imaginations. So what to do? What are the values on which we should uh, base the journey, the exploration? This, this moment we have where we're dangled between two mysteries, the mystery of where we came from and the mystery of where we're going to. So no one has any, what should I say, um, anything to say about those mysteries other than the stories they wish to share. And those stories come from our ancestors primarily, right? And the new stories that come out are mostly a combination of older stories uh, reformatted for, for, the, for, the present, for the present time. So I'm interested in promoting stories that are pro-humanity, right? Now, some people, you know, uh, they want to blow the whole thing up. Now, I can't say you're wrong. Why should I inhibit your, your desire to destroy everything? I mean, this, this, that's apparently meaningful for you. But personally, I'm, I'm, for, I'm for the group, for the tribe, for the people that want to do everything we can to continue the human experience and not end it. Now, the human experience might end, right? We're not the masters of that. We didn't create the human experience, and we're not the ones that are going to end the human experience, except that we have the ability to negate, to say no. Animals don't have that ability. You know, whatever comes to an animal, they have to embrace. They have to accept it. It's their reality. We're, we're the only creatures that will say no. We want to negate the whole thing. And some people want to, so upset, they want to negate the whole human experience. And, uh, you know, we had a movie, Dr. Strangelove, about that. Let's blow up the whole thing and, you know, send a few people into outer space or underground and what have you. So I'm not for that view. And I'm uh, of the view and the belief that we want to do anything that we can to enhance our natural environment to protect our natural environment and to transition to the next phase in how we format our lives in this world. It's, I think it's evident to most everyone that we just cannot continue on the present course and there has to be some significant course correction. And of course, people struggle to figure out what that might be. And in, in, in my case, my publishing program is really an explanation, uh, an exploration, not explanation, but an exploration of the, of the values and the ideas and the principles that have uh, caused and sustained great cultures throughout history, right? So we publish books on ancient Egypt and ancient India and present day expressions of India, for example, in yoga and, uh, and Western traditions of magic and uh, witchcraft and uh, herbalism 
and homeopathy and naturopathy and all the different alternative uh, venues for taking care of this precious, precious body we've been given on birth, right? So along with taking care of our body, the body is, is really just a metaphor for the whole world. So as we pollute our, our oceans and our rivers and our streams, at the same time, we're polluting our blood stream, right? Right, And there's a relationship between the two. So my great-grandmother or grandfather wouldn't have had much of anything in their body that wasn't present in, in the Garden of Eden, okay? Nowadays, there's nobody living on the planet that doesn't have hundreds of microscopic elements in their, in their bloodstream from strontium 90, you know, low level radioactivity to numerous plastics and chemicals, right? So we're, we're in a situation where uh, at the same time that we're polluting the external environment, we're also polluting the internal environment. So we want to purify our internal environment and we want to support and enhance our external environment. And there are many things we can do about that. And I've devoted my life and my publishing program to offering ideas and solutions and, 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 and stories and thinking about how we might potentially do these things. And I've also applied them in my, in my own life. I've been practicing yoga for over 40 years every day. Okay. I start every morning with a freezing cold shower every day, okay? And, and I'm reminded of these, these ideas that I read about when I was in my 20s. Um, and uh, that, that was when I first encountered this idea of taking cold baths, right? Which has now become very trendy. And people, you know, people have taken ice baths and all of that. But of course, uh, you know, I start my day and I shower and, and do my daily uh, preparations for going into the world. I end them, I end the hot shower with a freezing cold shower, focuses the mind, opens up the bloodstream, you know, gets the blood opening and going. And it's been a great thing for me, right? Along with the yoga that I do every, every day. The same thing with food, you know, I, I've tried, I, I remember when the organic movement started and my first organic food was from a farm stand at the end of the village where I was living because that's all that existed. And um, then it turned into a multi-billion dollar business and uh, organic food, because obviously the, the people want purity in their food as well. And the commercial food, the mass market food that's being offered is slowly killing the society. When I, when I grew up, uh, rarely did you see someone that was overweight, right? Now I think we have 30% obesity. And a lot of that is just a function of high fructose sugar that's put into the beverages and salts that are put into the food. And, you know, it's very difficult for people. Everyone can't be a nutritionist. Everyone can't figure all of this out. That's why it's so important to have valuable, solid information. My wife has just written a book called The Ayurvedic Reset Diet, which is uh, basically about, you interviewed her recently, uh, basically about how to reset your metabolism using ancient Ayurvedic principles 
so that you can recharge your system and freshen it uh, after it's been polluted by years of, of, of taking in substances that are really not meant to be in your body. You look at, you look at the ingredients on some of the packages, you need, you need to get a, a PhD to really understand what's in the food you're eating, right? So I'd say anything that requires a PhD to understand what's in, in it, you should probably avoid it. And most of what would be good for you, you, you'll very easily be able to understand. And if it's in a package, try to avoid it. Try to go for all fresh, natural food. So how, how does that all um, play into um, our relationship with our animal brothers and sisters? Okay. It's a vast symbiosis. I don't believe in evolutionary theory uh, as it applies to uh, the survival of the fittest. Because when you think about it, um, the bacteria in our body, which are, you know, these incredibly small organisms, right, in our, in our gut, right, that are in the hundreds of millions, right, they've done a better job dealing with things than we have, right, and they're these, these little creatures, right, they're doing just, they're doing just, just fine. So it, it, it isn't a, a survival of the fittest. It's this vast symbiosis where we're all re relying on each other, okay? So if you see life as that, this vast relationship with, with everyone else, then I think it's necessary to have a respectful attitude. doesn't mean you have to be a, a vegetarian, but it does mean that you should take some interest in how... Uh, food comes to you and how the animals are treated, right? Um, we, we published a book uh, many years ago called Voices of the First Day, Awakening in the Aboriginal Dreamtime. And um, the aboriginals of Australia um, were a continuous culture at least 100,000 years old, as far as we can tell, probably older than that. And um, they had a, their own specific relationship. They were hunter-gatherers with, uh, with animals, right? So uh, there's a story in the book, which I always found quite telling, where a group of men, because men did the hunting, right? A group of men, including young men, went out on a hunt. And this young boy killed an emu bird. It's a big bird, right? So the father had the child lie down on the bird, right? Put its head, the child's head near the bird's heart and start speaking to the bird saying, you know, please forgive me. And you're going to your ancestors and I need, I need you for the substance of my people. I need to be able to feed my people. Will you forgive me? Will you allow me this? Okay. So at that point, there was still a spiritual connection with the hunt a spiritual connection with meat. You know, the Native Americans called meat medicine and they weren't eating meat every day, right? But they considered meat a medicine. So uh, let's say they were eating a deer. A deer would be free ranging and would eat all these plants, right? Uh, medicinal plants and other plants. Those plants would then be transformed into tissue and then they were hunted and killed and eaten, right? but as medicine, right? Uh, there were no factory farms. There was no abuse of animals and there was no taking of more than what was necessary, okay? 
So we're, we're in a different situation nowadays, but the principles, the ideas are similar. So you want to have a spiritual relationship with food. You don't want to see it in a mechanistic way, that it's just something you take in order to burn, have calories so that you can move around in the world, right? This is a spiritual partaking. This is a, a partaking of the body of the earth so that your body can continue, right? And eventually your body becomes food as well, okay? So it's just a continuous cycle. Now, some will say we're on some kind of evolutionary path to uh, a higher, better, more wonderful situation, okay? And that may be true. But my personal, my personal view is not linear, it's cyclical, and it, it reflects what the ancients thought of time, which is cyclical. So in the Hindu tradition, they have the great yugas, which are hundreds of thousands of years long. And the first yuga, the Sata Yuga, the age of truth, right, was the purest. It was considered the highest, highest form, right? But what was going on in the Sata Yuga? In the Sata Yuga, you had naked people living in the forest with dreadlocks, right? Hair going down their shoulders, living in a garden and eating what was available to them. So for the, for the Hindus, that was the highest stage, was the Sata Yuga. And now we're in, in uh, the Kali Yuga, the last age, the age of speed, destruction, and decline. And one way of looking at this is uh, in an organic way, right? So you start out with a seed. The seed's this little thing, right? But it contains the potential of the entire plant. It's encoded in that little, little object. That seed is put into the ground. And all of a sudden, over time, there's a plant that appears, right? Okay, and the plant comes out, and then there's a flower, okay? Now, when there's a flower, it's probably reached its most beautiful aesthetic point. You might call that flower the renaissance of that seed, right? Where everything is so beautiful and in proportion and inspiring. Then that, that, that flower yields to the fruit, right? Flower gives way and now there's a fruit and the fruit's there. And let's say you get into the fruit's consciousness and the fruit says, well, you know, everything before is about me. It's all about the fruit, everything, you know, flower, leaves, all that, who cares? I'm the fruit, right? And in a way that's kind of the modern mentality, right? Is we've reached this pinnacle. Those that worship in the church of progress that bow down at the altar of technology and modernism and all of that, right? Which is nothing wrong. It's all good. It's all projection of the human imagination. It didn't come from outer space, unless of course you believe in the ancient alien theory, the whole thing came from outer space, which I personally like that theory because it upsets everybody else's theories, you know? So uh, I think why not have uh, alien ancestors, okay? So, um, and of course, there's a lot of recorded evidence for that, but, but back to the seed, to the fruit. So now you've got a fruit and yeah, it's, it's incredible. That fruit contains everything. 
that the that the seed was was imagining right so in 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 the seed is the imagination of the fruit now the fruit goes through its cycle it falls to the ground what happens it becomes the manure for the new seed and hence the cycle continues and and i think that that's the case with humanity and civilizations as well is that they go through this organic cycle of uh like the seed state you could say would be the hunter gatherer there's nothing they don't build buildings they don't wear clothing there's no external expression there's just a living in the now in the presence of the garden right and everything is provided and then eventually you know that changes and you get fixed plot agriculture right and once you get fixed plot agriculture you get a division of society into four castes and you can see that everywhere All of a sudden, society organizes itself into four parts, right? And then that goes on for a period. And, um, you know, there's what, what I call a reversal of the caste system. So it starts out with the, the highest caste being the priest caste. And uh, eventually that falls and the kingly warrior caste become dominant. And eventually that falls and the mercantile business caste becomes dominant. That's what's happening today, right? And eventually that will fall and the worker caste will be dominant, right? Which communism and, and many of the, the sort of socialist and, and, and communal uh, ideas are a precursor of the worker's paradise and the worker's world. And then I believe the whole thing will extinguish itself and start up again, right? So I don't know how long that will take. I don't know why that will happen. Or uh, I, I'm quite limited in my uh, ability to uh, understand the, the, the future and the past. But from what I've seen and from my life experience, that organic metaphor is well reflected in what goes on in the world. And once you start with agriculture, where you have a fixed plot, you have to go back to that plot, and it's only that plot plot and that's your plot and that's where you get your food then society starts organizing itself into four parts and you see that all the way throughout our histories whether it's in india or or in europe you had a caste system right priest caste your warrior you know aristocratic caste your mer mercantile merchant caste and your worker caste right and it's not to say that any caste is better than the other right uh, and it's not to say that any caste can't abuse the other castes, right? But, you know, you look to a world of harmony and peace where all these different parts are working together. And that's, that's your golden age. When they're not working together, like now, you have these transitions and these changes. And where they'll all lead to, um, who can say, right? But one, one, one thing you can say is that there are things that are really promotive of the human experience, right? Love, peace, harmony, uh, uh, you know, support to, for each other, brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, equality. These ideas, they, they actually are very pro-human, you know, and, and you can have good human experience if you go with these, right? But there are also forces in opposition to that. 
right? And you can't say which which will which will be the dominant force going forward. I'm hoping for the sake of my son and for the sake of the planet that we can we can pull in the right direction. However, I don't believe that you're going to convince anybody, right? I believe rather that it's it's almost like a tribe. And our tribe is all over the world and has awakened to these realities. And my publishing company serves these people that I find everywhere, wherever I go, I find people, like-minded people, as I'm sure you do, and you interview like-minded people all over the world. So they're everywhere. But there are other people that they, they don't want to hear about that, right? So the question is, how will nature unfold? And it will, be, will it be the organic, food-eating, loving people that persevere? Or will it be, uh, you know, a, di a different group? I tend to believe that our group will, uh, will be the inheritors of the earth. But the question is, what kind of earth are we going to inherit? And, you know, uh, I can't say. All I can say is I've seen times that are as difficult or more difficult when I was growing up. I mean, you had, you know, the draft, you had the Vietnam War, you had racial riots, you know, you had poverty, you had Jim Crow, you had segregation in the South, right? So it was pretty heavy, right? And now we've got, we've got some nasty stuff going down, but I'm a believer in our, in our, in our tribe leading the way. And in, in the 60s, none of these trends were dominant. Now look what's happened. The ideas that came out of that period of time, organic food, natural cosmetics, yoga, holistic health, alternative medicine. You know, you got a guy like Dr. Oz, right? Who's a, a, a cardiac surgeon at Columbia Presbyterian, one of the largest hospitals in the world, going on TV telling people to eat flaxseed, right? So you, you would have never seen that when I was growing up. So our people are, are achieving positions of dominance and influence, but that doesn't mean you don't get a guy, you know, comes into the White House that his, his idea of heaven is, uh, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken and you know, <laughs> golf. Okay, right? So uh, made everyone crazy, right? But I find living in Vermont, now I'm in Costa Rica, but my home and publishing company is in, is in Vermont, I find that even the most conservative, um, Republican, right-wing people, wonderful people, you know, <laughs> and, and we live together very happily. Vermont, which has a Republican governor, did probably the best in the whole country in terms of managing the pandemic. And that's, and that's my, my friends, right? And, and, and colleagues, all right? And that are really principled, lovely people, right? But they aren't necessarily doing yoga and eating organic food, right? But they, re, you know, there's respect, there's love, there's appreciation, there's a sense of community. And there's, there's this really important vitamin T, okay? So important vitamin T, you know, tolerance, right? We have to have tolerance for each other, right? And India, I call it planet India is a great example of that because it's like another planet. 
And somehow they've been able to live and tolerate each other, even though there's a hundred different religions, a thousand different food styles. Uh, you know, uh, Vatsala would say there's a, what what a thousand, there's a, a million and eight religions in in in, uh, <laughs> in India. I mean, there's actually 14 official languages in the Constitution, 14 languages, right? So it's an incredibly diverse place, and somehow they have learned to be tolerant of each other. And that's a very important lesson for us. And that's something that they have to offer us along with yoga and karma and reincarnation and Ayurveda and all these other ideas that have come out of India. Uh, this ability to live together communally in, in an atmosphere of tolerance, I've seen uh, in India on a level where I haven't seen anywhere else in the world. But it's possible, it's possible. I was faced with a um, decision. Was that actually? Wasn't even a decision. It was pressure from a, 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 a advocacy group, maybe ten years ago, uh, to do all my books using recycled paper. Now that sounds like a really good thing to do, doesn't it? Print your books in recycled paper. And of course, the book publishing industry is very liberal, very progressive, right? A lot of women running companies and you know it's 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 a good example of what's possible so it's a very easy sell recycled paper recycled paper recycled paper so i i thought about it and i said no i don't like this idea of recycled paper in books and then i explained uh why i didn't like it and the reason is that my books are excellent stewards of fiber they will be available and in use 100, 200, 300, 400 years from now. And the amount of fiber we use is minuscule in terms of the fiber that goes into paper production. It's like a couple of percent, the whole industry, right? So my point of view is recycled paper is great. It should be used, but fibers uh, uh, from trees, they can go through maybe five recycling cycles, right? Before they disintegrate. So it's a finite, it's a finite resource, but okay, recycle. My belief is that the people that are causing paper pollution should recycle their paper pollution into their products. So if you're producing a million catalogs of Victoria's Secret lingerie, Victoria's Secret should be recycling paper to put into their catalogs until they can't do it anymore. What I want to do is I want to introduce fiber into the environment. So my, my, instead of using recycled paper in my books, I use them in my catalogs. And in my books, I use virgin sheets because you got to start it somewhere. Someone's got to have a virgin sheet. And uh, I believe the book publishers should have them because they're the best stewards of the fiber. And the way I want to return is by planting trees. So if you ask what's a simple thing that anyone can do, right, to help the environment, plant a tree, right? Find a way to plant a tree or start a garden, right? It's the easiest thing to do, right? And it has a dramatic impact. So I'm planting tens of thousands of trees in Costa Rica. 
so that generations in the future will have fiber. Plus, it's it's extending the rainforest. The, the project we have is a farm that's adjacent to the Rio Cote National Forest. So right, right across the Rio Cote River, our border is one side of the river and the other side of the uh, river is, is, is primary forest. So part of our farms, about a third of our farms are primary forest and I've put them under contract with the Costa Rican government to sell carbon credits. So the primary forest on our farms cannot be touched. It's illegal to go in there and hunt. It's illegal to cut a tree. It's illegal, right? So they're, 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 the primary forest is, is protected in perpetuity under contract with the Costa Rican government. And then the areas that were cleared for grazing primarily, uh, I'm reforesting in an effort to enhance the watershed. So I'm reforesting against the uh, national forest, which is already primary forest. So that's allowing the that's allowing the insects and the birds and the animals to increase their terrain and come into our farm. And I'm not reforesting with any kind of commercial intent. So we've got about 56 different species in our reforestation. So there's species that are specifically for insects, right? That attract butterflies and other insects. There's species for uh, the monkeys and there's species for the birds and for the other animals, right? So we're trying to reproduce the rainforest by uh, reforesting in a way that reflects what's already there. And we're, or, we're collecting seeds to uh, uh, develop a nursery of the trees that are already in the forest. So we've got these um, uh, Manu trees that we're uh, presently working on that are uh, hardwoods that will take 50 to 100 years to get to the point where they're, they, they're mature. And uh, they're exotic. Uh, it's illegal to cut them. And we're planting them uh, from the seeds of other Manu trees in the, in, in the jungle. So we collect seeds and then we, we put them in nursery and then we plant the trees. And we also get trees from um, uh, the Costa Rican government monopoly, uh, energy monopoly, ISE, which, uh, which runs this um, hydroelectric lake, if you will. And one of their goals is to reforest around the lake because it, it increases the water, right? Coming into the lake. So it helps for energy production. So they have nurseries uh, and we get trees from them uh, as the contribution to our reforestation project, because the goal on our project is to preserve the watershed. So um, 60, 70 years ago, when the Costa Ricans took the forest down to graze cattle, they didn't think watershed, right? So you have, you have landslides and you have uh, uh, streams that have dried up. We, I can show you streams on our reforestation project that didn't exist 10 years ago. And now there's a running, there's running water because we introduced trees back into that area, right? So, so that, that for us is a way of giving back. We also, another thing I would say to, uh, to your listeners in terms of what you can do is you can think electricity, okay? We really need to have the whole society electrified and so that we're no longer burning fossil fuels because it's kind of, it's kind of yesterday 
really, you know, burning dinosaur bodies? Do we really need to do that? I don't think so. I, I, think, I think that we can only exist in this world because there's a source of energy that supplies us, that we don't have anything to do with extracting or finding or anything, and that's the sun. Right. So everything basically is solar, even 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 the fossil fuels are solar because the animals needed the sun to eat the plant life, to create the bodies that eventually decayed and became the, the uh, repositories of organic matter in the ground. Right. So so we need to hook into that um, source of power. And uh, in my case, uh, I've uh, put up, I bought property near the office in, in Vermont and I've uh, created a solar farm. So I'm generating all the electricity that I use in my publishing company and my home and other properties that we're in charge of uh, is all powered using solar energy. And I'd even produce more provided the utility uh, and the uh, regulatory agencies would allow it, which they don't because there's still they're still really in a 19th century model. What happened with Vermont, it's kind of interesting, um, is, uh, and it was also the case here in Costa Rica, in rural Costa Rica, is people generated their own electricity. There was no grid. There was no ability to get electricity from someone else. So the farmer would, on a stream on their property, would put it in a little water wheel and generate electricity. So Vermont had well over a thousand small hydro uh, producers all around the state. This is in the early 20th century. Then they decided to dam up the Connecticut River. And the idea was to um, produce cheap electricity so that Vermont could become an industrial center so that you could have factories and you could have cheap electricity to power the factories. Well, they built the dams and they sold all the electricity to Boston and Albany and New York. It all left the state. So what happened is all the small scale hydro that was servicing the local populations. We had, a, we had our own electric company, Rochester Electric, for the little, the little village of a thousand people. We had our own electric company and they had their own little hydro facility and they supplied electricity. All that disappeared. The big hydro projects sold their electricity to the cities and Vermont is now buying electricity from Hydro Quebec in Canada, where they flooded an area the size of the state of Vermont to produce electricity, destroyed indigenous land, destroyed forests, et cetera, to produce this massive, massive hydro project. My view is, and it's based on computing technology, when I started out in uh, publishing, you had mainframes. These are centralized sources of computing power, very expensive, only accessible to large corporations that could make the multi-million dollar investment, okay? Then in the 1980s, uh, something called the PC came out and you, you had this microprocessor and you could have your own little computer that you could carry around or have in your office, et cetera. So now you had the PC mainframe was still there minis were there but now you had pc i said wow this is really cool this is early 80s I said i want to run my company on a pc so i started i started looking into that technology anyway long story short now we're living in a world of network computers 
So computing power isn't about mainframes. It's about the this network called the internet of all these individual producers of information and computing power spread all over the world. And even your cloud computing, the big computer uh, uh, companies like Amazon, except the clouds, they're just buildings with little computers networked together, right? But thousands of them. So what happened is computing went from centralization, uh, high cap, ha highly capital intensive centralized power to network distributed power. And that's where I think we need to go in the future. So energy production should be decentralized. That means if I want to produce energy in my property, I'm doing it now with net metering, but I produce more if they actually allowed me to sell it, which they don't, right? Plus I have two brooks that run on my property and both those brooks, we have a nice, a nice descent. So I could put inline turbines in the stream that wouldn't hurt anything and generate hydropower. And I would do it. I would make the investment, right? Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm providing electricity for many of my employees because I'm producing more than I can net meter. So I'm net metering their, their electricity. Uh, and if I could do it, I would do everybody in the company. And I, I, and I would change my heat from propane to uh, electricity, right? And I'm, actually, I'm working on that project now with our, our solar provider. But the real, the real inhibitor is government. All right, because all the regulations are set up uh, for these big projects that were happening in the la last century. And if I want to do hydro on my property, which might be an investment of a couple of hundred thousand dollars in equipment, it would take me a couple of million dollars to go through the regulatory process. So it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So these laws have to change. And they have to, in my view, uh, this, this idea of distributed power has to come into the consciousness. And then the grid has to be reorganized for just like the internet has allowed us to you know, exchange data, we should be able to exchange power. And if you wanted to be on an exercise bike in your house, no reason why your exercise bike couldn't be sending power to the grid, right? No reason. You know, your whole house could be a source of energy, you know, um, and uh, be organized in such a way that it was net zero, that you didn't use energy and that you actually contributed energy. It's really a function of the human imagination. It's not technology. It's not an argument of, oh, well, you know, the sun doesn't shine any all the time. So, uh, you know, alternative energies aren't reliable. Th this, kind of, this kind of nonsense narrative which is the main narrative to me is it, it just obscures the reality that the real issue is the human imagination if we want to imagine a future for ourselves that's free of fossil fuels and that operates in a well let, let's take nicholas tesla the guy that invented ac his imagination and he wrote this in his diaries and he tested this was beaming electricity to everybody so let's say you had a car, you'd have an electric car and you'd have a receiver like a radio receiver in your car and you'd receive electricity from the atmosphere and you'd buzz around, right? So in Tesla's biography, or not autobiography, I should say his journals, 
which was seized by the FBI when he died because he was so far ahead of, of the science and technology of his day, they still haven't figured out what he was up about. You know, they still haven't really figured out. He lit, he lit up a light bulb using beam power. Now our, our um, idea of beam power is uh, recharging your iPad by, or your iPhone by sticking it on a pad, right? Where it wirelessly sends electricity, it, very close proximity. Right. And we also can do transactions with our phone if we're close to the reader. Well, why not have all the electricity beamed to us from space? Right. And hooked into a, a source like the sun where there'd be very little cost. Right. Why, why, why should it even be expensive? Right. So that the energy, energy and information, computing power and energy would be so inexpensive that they would just be there in support of the human imagination. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be there to tax our wallets uh, so that uh, all we can think about is food, shelter, and paying our electric and heating bills, right? So there, the, the, in my view, there, the, the, the great wealth isn't in the 1%. It isn't in the large corporations. It isn't in the pharmaceutical companies. It's in the human imagination. And we can go and do whatever we imagine we want to do, right? So if it's on a personal level, connect with your imagination. Don't allow other people's ideas and formulations to crowd out your own in internal navigation system, your own internal sense of who you are and your own ability to imagine a future for yourself, right? And the same thing applies to the whole planet, right? And that imagination can be fed by good stories that are pro the human experience, that are pro the environment, that are pro our animal brothers and sisters, and that are pro the organic world that we live in. You know, I think it's a, it's a real mistake to think uh, in a Darwinian fashion that we somehow sit at the pinnacle of some hierarchy of life. Okay, again, it's, it's a vast symbiosis. All that's necessary is for plant life to be reduced so that I think it's a two or 3% reduction in oxygen, we're gone. Okay, so what's, what, which is the greater species, the plants or the, or the humans, right? And is there a, the ability for the plants and humans to communicate? I believe there is. There's this illusion, delusion, in my view, that uh, we discovered medicinal and edible plants through trial and error. So you can, you can get it. You know, this family's walking down the path in the jungle. The kid goes, oh, look at that. And he grabs it, eats it, drops dead. Then everybody says, ah, take note of that plant. You know, that's a deadly plant, right? I don't think it happened that way. Okay, I believe that the plants speak to the imagination that can identify with their, with their speech, with their world. And that there's been a transmission between the animal world and the plant world and humanity that goes back to the beginning of time. Okay, and drawings on pa uh, cave painting, drawings are part of that process of storytelling 
that evokes the imagination, okay? And that there, there, there's an ability. I, I, I was in the Amazon jungle with the Schwa. These are a, 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 a tribe of head, head shrinkers that live in the Amazon basin, uh, sort of on the border between uh, Peru and Ecuador. And I was with a group of hunters and they had uh, taken ayahuasca with their shaman the night before. Why? Not to get high or party, but they needed to hunt for food. So they asked the spirit of the plant to show them where the food was. So they, they, they had this dream of these wild boar, like wild pigs, crossing a stream at sunrise in a particular place that was known to them. So I went with these guys to that place. And sure enough, there was food that morning, right? So somehow in their way of being in the jungle, there was communication between the species and the needs of the species. There was this symbiosis that allowed them to feed themselves and, and sustain themselves. It's also interesting if you listen to their stories, this is again the schwa. They were hunter gatherers, but when I met them, this was in the, uh, the late eighties, right? 1980s, they weren't doing fixed plot agriculture, but they were doing uh, slash and burn agriculture. So not uh, along with, along with, um, with uh, hunting and gathering to sustain themselves, they were planting yucca, okay? Which is a tuber uh, that they eat. And I asked them, what, what, you know, how did this happen? And they sang a song for me, the, the song Tanunkui, the goddess of agriculture, not, not goddess, I got a goddess of the plants. And apparently the people, the schwa, they call themselves the schwa, it means the people, right? The people were hungry and they called Tanunkui and Nuk, she told them about yucca. And that's how yucca entered their culture. So some people can say, well, that's fanciful or whatever, you know, it's, it was a hallucination or I don't believe it. Personally, I think that there's an ability to communicate and uh, our needs can be expressed in a way where there's a feedback loop with the universe. When our needs and our intentions are correct and our hearts are pure, we'll be given what we need, right? To sustain ourselves. So we like to say that uh, we are the market for our books. So the, the, I've published uh, close to 2,000 books over the last 40 years. 2,000, like it's hard to imagine. But I'm the market for those books. I wanna read them, you see? So uh, it's, it, it's, it's important to me, this whole uh, publishing endeavor and the people that are involved in it it comes out of our own lived experience and what's interesting and important to us. And I think that's one of the keys to our success as a publishing company is that we are really the market for our books. We are really the ones that are interested in reading our books. And it just so happens, uh, um, uh, you know, it's a great good fortune that now there are a lot of people out there that feel the same way. It wasn't the case when I started the company in 1975. I remember, um, going into a sales conference with our sales reps. These are the guys that would go, guys and girls that would go to bookstores and show our books and say, buy some, right? And anyway, it was, I think, 1979. 
I introduced the art of aromatherapy. And I explained to the, the, the sales reps what the art of aromatherapy was. They laughed. They said, hey, are you kidding, man? Smells are gonna you know, change our health and all of that. And, and, and then I'm saying, well, you know, the olfactory nerve bypasses the cerebral cortex. Isn't that interesting, right? So the, the, the nose, you know, people go, go like this, I know, the nose knows. Well, actually, sensations in the nose bypass the intellectual part, the yes, no, right, wrong, left, left right part of the uh, uh, thinking, the, the cerebral cortex, and they go into the earlier, deeper parts of the brain. So there must be something to this idea that smell has an effect, right? Right. Also, also, smell is very tied to uh, memory. You can invoke memories through smell that you can't through words or images. So, smell is a very fascinating thing in my view, uh, and, and it's a and it's a way of knowing, and the senses being embodied, right? To my mind, is the opportunity to have the sensory experience. So you don't want to diminish that experience. You want a healthy body that's sensitive, right? To its visual impulses, uh, smell, taste, hearing, all those things. You want a heightened uh, sense of sensation, not a diminished, right? And that again is pro-human. You eat the right foods, you do the right exercise, you know, you, you have good air, et cetera. That all will help your senses read the environment uh, more, more accurately and with more depth and more interest, right? So in any event, uh, when I began, they, they, were, they were laughing, but within maybe a decade, I don't think there's a spa in the world that doesn't offer aromatherapy treatments, right? And, the, and then you had a big aromatherapy company, Avida, which was started by Horst Rittenbach, one of our authors, uh, started uh, an aromatherapy company and... Uh, became huge. I think they're, not, they're owned by SD Water now. The horse just passed away a few years ago. In any event, uh, you know, there have been numerous things that we um, published way ahead of them becoming uh, trendy, so to speak. And one of, one of the things I, I say about our publishing companies is that we're not mainstream. We're upstream. We're upstream where the fish go to, you know, have their babies, right? So our, our job is to create the trends, to be aware of the, the trends, to be upstream. And eventually, if we're fortunate, they become mainstream. And uh, that's been a big part of our success, that some of the things that were really, you know, considered obscure and strange have now become, uh, you know, in, incredibly mainstream. You take our um, our books by Zachariah Sitchin and other books on on flying saucers. I had, I had no interest in that subject area at all. And um, then I met uh, one of the two founders of uh, the company that created SimCity, Simulate City. It was a very popular, I think it still is, uh, computer game. This guy was quite brilliant. Yeah, I was invited to a lunch uh, luncheon with him. And he started talking to me about uh, gray aliens. 
right? And after this, after this lunch, I said, you know, Ehud, are you really that limited? Isn't there room in your universe for aliens as well? So yeah, let's just be open to this as a possibility. And, and nothing happened. And 10 years later, Zachariah Sitchens shows up. And Zachariah's story is that uh, as a young boy in Israel, uh, being educated, he challenged the teacher about the word Nephirim, which is uh, th these, these beings that came from space, right? But they don't like to translate it that way. That's the direct translation. So as a young child, he started wondering about the, this idea that there were these beings that came from outer space and they copulated with, with uh, human, uh, humanoid, uh, uh, hominoids and uh, that there was actually a race of half human, half gods and all of this. And he became, uh, Zachariah then became a leading uh, scholar and translator of uh, Chaldean and Sumerian. He was able, one of the six live, people living at that time that could read Chaldean tablets. And he developed this whole uh, series of books that we published about the Anunnaki, this race that came from a planet called Nibiru, which one of the latest Star Trek movies they use Nibiru is where they started the movie out, which I thought was funny. <laughs> right. So uh, the Anunnaki, they came from Nibiru and they were uh, uh, human forms like us, but they were much bigger. They were like seven feet. And they came to, they came to um, the earth from their planet to mine. Why were they mining? Their atmosphere was failing and they were mining gold and they turned the gold into a, 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 a mist or a nanoparticles probably in modern technology that they were injecting into the atmosphere to help save the atmosphere of their planet. And um, I said, that's pretty wild. That, uh, that's an interesting story. And I said, okay, and we started publishing all these books by Zachariah. But look what's happened now. There's all this discussion, and there's even been some experiments of mining asteroids, of going to other planets to mine, just like our ancestors. Okay. Now, you could argue, and I think it would be a pretty persuasive argument, that you can drive as many Priuses as you want and put up as many solar fields as you want. But that's not going to stop an extinction event because here here's a here's a, an extinction event which looks quite plausible based on the present science we know that the ice is melting okay when the ice recedes and starts melting over land you have permafrost you have organic matter that's been frozen for a million years when the ice recedes past the permafrost the permafrost is going to uh, release methane on a level beyond China times 10. Okay. And it's going to happen quickly. So you could have, you could have a, a heating event, accelerated healing event that wipes out most of humanity and most of the plants and animals within a short period of time. So that's a very plausible, a plausible possibility. Now, what, what should you do to deal with that? Well, the ideas of um, environmentalism, you know, reduce carbon emissions, that's all great. But the carbon that's affecting us now was put in the air maybe 30 years ago. Okay, it's not what you put in the air today. 
it's this accumulation from the beginning of the industrial revolution that's 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 getting up there right so of all of a sudden you have this massive release you know a, a phenomenal release of methane what are you going to do right so i think you're probably going to want to do something like the anunnaki did and put something in the atmosphere and there's been experimentation with that since actually since the late 1960s but it's a tricky game because you don't know what the unintended consequences are going to be. And they, they, they've injected salt into the atmosphere, the very substances that have been injected in the atmosphere, which of course reduces solar radiation, which reduces heat. Just like there was, you know, the little ice age uh, and other cold periods in, in uh, the earth's um, history where volcanoes went off and they, they had like a two year or three year cooling because of the particular matter in the atmosphere was so much greater because of the volcanic eruption, right? So we might be looking at something like that in the future, okay? However, that doesn't in any way change the imagination about moving away from fossil fuels, moving away from destructive activities uh, in the environment, okay? This rainforest around me here that we're looking to help preserve it's an information database on a level we can't even imagine what medicines foods other things that would be useful useful for humanity exist in these rainforests and we have absolutely no idea right we also don't know what's going to happen if we start reducing some of the species that are getting reduced like frogs we know there's there's an issue with frogs and how that's how that what kind of ripple effect that's going to have right so in terms of humanity saying here's the solution or i've got the solution i wouldn't listen to anybody that says something like that right there are many stories out there and i would organize the stories around what's really promotive of the human experience so electric cars it's a no-brainer they're much more efficient less moving parts, they don't break. I mean, it's a much better way of getting around than blowing up oil in a piston, right? Which of course, there's a lot of wear in that and smoke and all this other kind of stuff, right? So we definitely do want to go electric and then we want to supply electricity to that intelligent grid in ways that don't degrade the environment and that don't cost us, right? So once you've got a solar field up, I put a solar field up 10 years ago, it doesn't cost me anything to, he, to, to, to run my publishing company uh, for electricity. I paid for it already. Within 10 years, the solar field paid for itself. So now it's just generating electricity, not costing me anything except, you know, a little bit of money for maintenance. Now, solar fields require hardly any maintenance at all, you know. Um, in fact, I haven't spent anything on the solar field in 10 years. Just recently, that one junction box got... Uh, uh, got worn out, had to be replaced, the inverter had to be, that's about it. So basically all the computers in the publishing company, the telephones, everything, the lights, it's all running for free. And at the same time, I'm not creating any pollution and I'm not creating any problems for anybody. It's interesting that uh, the word currency is used for wealth. What's the current? What's the currency 
Okay, so it's an interesting question because a lot of the, the social dialogue and commentary in the news media and uh, issues of uh, social justice and welfare revolve around these these ideas, but it's hardly ever the case that anyone actually tries to define the words. So when you say these people are wealthy or they're the one percent or they have all the wealth, what does that actually mean in, in, in reality? So I guess you start with the question, what is wealth? Well, I would, uh, I would um, suggest that wealth is the human imagination. The, uh, it comes from the imaginal realm and it's a function of humans being able to imagine. So when you think about the human experience, going back to the earliest times that we can imagine, right? Let's say you imagine them as caveman times, people maybe in, um, in furs and living in a cave and drawing on the wall, et cetera. And, 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 and that's sort of the, the image you have. And you ask yourself, well, uh, did they have wealth? Or were they impoverished? Or, 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 or what was their wealth? What did they con consider uh, uh, to be the wealthy in their uh, society? Okay. Well, you know, again, you're back to, you're back to this question of, um, of what is wealth. Well, if you start with the uh, idea of, well, what is it to be human? I guess you have to start with that, right? Because it's only human beings that have this concept of, of wealth. Well, if you start with the you start with the human being, you say, okay, well, uh, going back to this earliest image of the cave man and woman, uh, and you got a human being, and you got this idea of wealth. Well, what do you start out with? Well, you start out with the human experience. What's the human experience? Well, that cave man and woman, they're breathing. Okay, they're moving. Hey, that's great. They're experiencing their five senses. That's really nice. They're eating and drinking, they're defecating, they're copulating and procreating, they're sleeping and they're dying. Okay, can you think of anything else that they might be doing? I mean, we do a lot of stuff, you know, we go shopping, we do all sorts of things, right? But those fundamental activities, those very fundamental activities, if you withdraw them, any one of them, completely, well, you don't have a human being anymore, do you? You know, um, or you, you have a very diminished form, diminished to not non-existent, right? Of course, if they die, they're not there. If they're not procreating, well, they can still be human, but their lineage doesn't continue. They're not able to help with the provocation of humanity, which is one of the things we want because we like this idea of the human experience and we want it to continue. So anyway, you've got these basic human experiences which haven't changed since the beginning of imagined time since the beginning of what we can think about as being human beings. So if all of a sudden we have all this, quote, wealth now, how did that happen? How did we go from running around in furs and doing everything we're doing now, basically? Everything, same things we're doing now as we're doing then. How did we get, get the, the, this concept of wealth? Well, it's important to look at how this concept has developed and in order to liberate it. And there are many, many uh, actions, it's interesting, in our uh, time period, in our, in our world, that are looking towards the liberation of this concept, right? So at one time, it was very much tied to uh, precious metals, okay? Uh, gold and silver. 
and people actually move this stuff around in wagon trains, you know, in Europe, the Medici's, they had their silver and they moved it around and tried to stash it so that people didn't grab it. And when the wars were happening, you know, they'd move it to another place. And, uh, you know, if they lost it, they'd be bankrupt and they had to get it from somewhere else. And so they, they, they would get this, uh, the, these uh, material substances, uh, gold and silver, and that would be the wealth. And you'd have to move it around. And um, when uh, the Americas were discovered by the Europeans, one of the main things that happened is they started digging up gold and silver. That's why they were there. But the Spanish really got a lot of silver. And because they got so much silver, and because that silver went to the, uh, to the Spanish crown and got distributed, right, all of a sudden you had currency. You had money to exchange with. Right before that, you know, the church had some cash, the aristocracy had some cash. You might swap land, or you might conquer land, and that was sort of the concept of how wealth moved. Right, but once all the silver came from the indigenous people in the Americas and flooded the European markets, now you had a currency, and you you started the development of mercantilism. You could actually do a transaction with the with with this with this currency that was available now in abundance and you started you started this international commerce started coming up okay so i won't discuss all the transformations because right now it's very interesting you go back to indigenous times let's say uh, on the trobian islands which are in the pacific right the the wealthy person was the kula master and the kula master had kula what's kula well there are these necklaces of shells that were transmitted down through the generations and through exchanges and various societal activities, you build up a store of kula, right? And the person that had the most kula was the wealthiest in the community. So the kula master was the guy that had the, the guy or the girl that had the dough. And in the case of the Trobians, it, it was usually a man, and their wealth was in kula and yams. Okay? So now you get to a point in our world where you have cryptocurrencies. So there actually is no substantial anything, right? It's this, it's this packet of information that's given a value, all right? So we, we went from, uh, you know, uh, exchanging uh, physical objects and, and, and minerals and, and metals like gold and silver to uh, wealth being our ability to move low-level electrical currents through databases. So, you know, you got someone like Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, what does that mean? Does he have this stash of gold in his basement? Well, what it means is that Jeff can, uh, through a electronic inf interface, move digits from one database to another database and cause actions to happen. So let's say he moves so, so many digits from one place to another place, and now a spaceship is being built because uh, you know the digits went into a into a database that's controlled by a manufacturer that makes metals, and now you're getting metal parts delivered because of this of this transaction. But the basic power, the the wealth power, is the ability to move data from one banking system to another. Right now, it's even looking to get liberated from that using uh, Bitcoin and these other digital currencies. Now countries are trying to get into this and, and we're looking at a, uh, a measure of wealth 
right, in digital currency, which is whatever we imagine it to be. Okay, so it has, so it has, it has, it doesn't have any substance, so to speak, right? Uh, other than low-level voltage. I mean, you have, you know, for Bitcoin and all that, you need uh, you need databases and computing power and, and cooling systems because it, it, this these processing for data mining for mining Bitcoin is, is very creates a lot of heat, which is interesting. Um, so now heat is con connected with data processing and, and the idea of wealth. And wealth, again, is this ability to move this data from one place to another based on the imaginative process. Now, if you go back to your cave men and women, they were living a life. Right? We can't say we have it on top. We, we can't say we have it better than them, unless you say that you know, having your iPhone and all of this some, somehow makes for better intercourse. I don't think it does. It doesn't necessarily make for a better, better exchange between human beings. So I, I think you know, it would be a kind of a, a prejudice for us to think that the way we're living our lives is somehow superior to the way people were living their lives in some other period of time. So consequently, since we're all basically doing the same thing since the beginning of time, the rest is in our imagination, right? So we, we think it's important to do all these things, and we're active doing all these things, and we need transaction engines to help support our ability to do all these things, right? But if society decided to imagine itself in a different way, we wouldn't be doing these things. And if you look, and if you look at the sort of the basic intersection uh, that you're interested in in your in your in your work, uh, Brandy, in saving animals and and, and 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 the environment, if you look at the basic intersection, now it's an intersection of ideas. So the 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 tribe that's going in the direction of the environment and alternative energies and all, all of these kinds of things, that's one kind of direction. The people that want to hold on to fossil fuels and maybe you know imagine themselves back in the 1950s when Leave It to Beaver was on the television and uh, you know uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart was the idea of the moral individual and you know uh, you know you know that's okay that's your imagination that's what you want to do right but which which imaginative process and what ideas are going to be uh, resonant with the zeitgeist, with the spirit of now, right? That's something you'll reflect on in the future. Our children will reflect on and say, okay, mommy or daddy, they were part of a direction that was life-sustaining, that was going in the right direction, right? So for example, on the environmental uh, side, you know, there's still this debate, even uh, uh, recently, this uh, physicist that was on Obama's environmental team has come out with a book saying the science isn't settled on climate change, right? I would, I would say that he's as correct in his analysis as people that are totally opposed to what he's saying in their analysis, right? And would say that he's, you know, a cretin and a throwback and all of that. And he would say that these people just don't respect science and they don't look at the facts and blah, blah, blah. I would say it all doesn't matter. The argument doesn't matter. 
What matters is the imagination. How do we imagine ourselves? So do we imagine ourselves, you know, burning fossil fuels to move around? Doesn't that seem kind of atavistic? Hasn't, been that, hasn't that been going on long enough, right? And isn't it true that if we want to stay competitive and, and part of the, the forefront of innovation, that we really do have to go electrical? Right? It, isn't China already made that commitment to their automotive industry and now GM has made that commitment? But isn't it kind of obvious that we need, the future needs to be electric? Which is what's been said since the 1950s, right? Except it had to go through its various processes. So at one point, uh, the, the, uh, the idea was that everyone should have electric heat, but then electric heat became too expensive and that's also the case right now. It's cheaper to b burn fossils because of the amount of energy per, you know, uh, the, 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 amount, the amount of BTUs that can be produced by weight is much greater with fossil fuels, right? But that's not the issue. The issue is solve that problem. And that problem is being solved, right? In one way because uh, solar uh, has gone down way below anything anybody predicted even, right? So. But my prediction is that the sort of the arguments, the intellectual back and forth that's going on about environmentalism will in the future be like, really? People were d discussing these obvious things? Why does this matter? What matters is that we go with the imaginative process and that's where the wealth will be found, right? So we need to, we need to think about wealth and we need to think about our future based on our imagination. And that's much more exciting than the intellectual argument of what's right and what's wrong, what's left and what's right. You know, all these sort of binary dialectic, uh, you know, arguments. Descartes proved quite conclusively, philosophically, that you can take any premise and argue it to its logical conclusion. So logic and, and deductive reasoning will not yield the truth they're important in navigating our world, but they will not yield a vision of the future. They will not produce wealth, okay? So your accountant that's counting everything and allocating everything isn't gonna produce the wealth. The wealth is gonna be produced by the guy, that's, guy or girl that's imagining, right? Guy, girl, or whatever gender they might be, uh, that's imagining some kind of something about being a human being going forward and what they might need. You know, uh, Steve Jobs was uh, once asked uh, why he didn't do market research. Why don't you do market research? And he quoted Henry Ford, who was asked the same question when he came out with the Model T. And Ford said, well, if I did market research, what I would have found out is everyone wants a faster horse that will eat less. They don't want a Model T. They want a horse that will eat less and go faster. That's what they want. Because that's where the imagination was. But, you know, the imagination went in a different direction. And now horses are just a specialty uh, thing, you know, for uh, 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 people that have accumulated wealth. You know, they ride around and do stuff. And then some sports people. And then where I am in Costa Rica, there's still a mode of transportation. We have workers come to the reforestation with uh, horses. 
and we move we move trees with oxen, right? Because uh, the land is very steep in places, and you can't even get a tractor down there, but you can get oxen down. Isn't that something? How the Hacienda Rio Cote project started out um, was actually it started out with environmentalism, because uh, two of our authors, right, uh, Robert Lawler and Joanna Lambert. Robert wrote Voices of the First Day, Awakening the Aboriginal Dream Time, and Joanna wrote Wise Women of the Dream Time, and they they they're married and they were living on King Island in Australia, which is in the Tasman Straits, and there was an old mine. Um, there on that island that the Chinese wanted to reopen because uh, Australia is primarily a natural resource bank for the Chinese and they, they're extracting here left, right and center from, uh, from Australia. And Robert and Joanna were very uh, concerned about this mine being reopened because they thought it was in, uh, environmentally toxic. And they went on to prove that. Uh, they actually, uh, with their own money, got a lab to come in and test the water near the school. And the water was still bad, uh, lake water was still bad from when the mine was open. Anyway, they proved pretty conclusively to the community that this would not be a good idea. But there was a lot of money involved, and a lot of people were going to get wealthy. And their imagination didn't fit with Robert and Joanna's, and they got death threats. Okay, So they called me up one day and they said, hey Hood, we want to come to Costa Rica find us some land. So that's what I did. And I found this land. And it was going to be a place for Rob and Joanna to settle. And I was going to work with them on that. And uh, what happened is Joanna passed away. And, and uh, it didn't happen. And now I had this land. And I'm going, what am I going to do? And at the same time, I was um, being asked to use recycled paper in my books. And I preferred to, to use version sheets. So anyway, uh, what I wanted to do was plant trees to offset my paper usage. So that's how the Hacienda Rio Cote Reforestation Project began. Anyone can look it up just by putting in Hacienda Rio Cote. Uh, they can also put in HRC Lodge, HRC Lodge. So we, we, we started this reforestation project and we, and we brought students down to, to plant trees. But there was no place to stay, so we built a lodge. So now, now we have this lodge, it's on Airbnb, and uh, you, you can book it directly. It's called HRC Lodge, HRC being Hacienda Rio, Rio, Hacienda Rio Cote, Reforestation Lodge. And Hacienda Rio Cote gets its name from Lake Cote, and Lake Cote has a river, Rio Cote, that runs from the lake past our property. It's the, it's the property line, and the, the Rio Cote National Forest is on one side, and on the other side is our property, and we're reforesting it. And the most famous flying saucer sighting ever photographed it was at Lake Cote. And you can look that up uh, if you're interested, Lake Cote, C-O-T-E, uh, UFO, and you'll see uh, this incredible photograph that was taken by a geological survey plane over Lake Cote. Anyway, and Lake Cote is also uh, called the heart of the world by the uh, uh, Maleku, who are the native people of this particular area in Costa Rica. So it's on our website. You can read about all the stuff. You just go to Hacienda Rio Cote. So uh, anyway, 
we were having students. We had students from, we opened the lodge in March and we had students booked all the way through October. But of course the pandemic came, everybody canceled. And we had a group of students with their principal at the, at the lodge uh, when things started getting really intense. And they ran back to the United States and then all the uh, Costa Rican airports were closed and boom, right? Uh, no more booking. So we put it up on Airbnb and then now it's become a, um, a very popular place to go if you're having a family reunion. Grandparents, the kids and the grandkids because it, it can comfortably accommodate 20 people. So, uh, and, and, and it's in this beautiful, wild, remote location. So I would encourage people, uh, you know, to book the lodge, either through Airbnb, Vibrio, or directly from us. You can go to the website. Uh, when you book the lodge, say you want to do reforestation, because we have a whole program for people that come down and want to do reforestation. We also uh, have a cultural program where you can, uh, you can go into the primary forest. So our, our farms... Are, are about a third that we're reforesting, a third that are primary jungle that are in contract with the Costa Rican government for carbon credits. They can't, it can't be touched. So the part that's contiguous with the river and the national forest, that's all still primary forest and it's under contract, can't be touched. Then we're doing reforestation after that. And then after that and closest to the road is grazing. And we're doing grazing in a, in a system that carbon sequesters. And you can read about that on our website as well. Uh, carbon, carbon sequestering through uh, uh, cattle grazing. And by certain estimates, you could sequester all the excess carbon just by these grazing techniques if they were adopted all over the world. So it's a fascinating thing. Human imagination. Right? It's not an argument about the wind doesn't blow all day and, and are the battery's big enough. or what. It's about imagination. Right? Where are we going with all of this? What do we want to be in the future? Uh, what, kind of, what kind of way do we want to live in this world? Right? Those are the primary things we need to be thinking about. And then we need to imagine that world and make it so. Right? And, and that's where the wealth creation is going to be in the future. And that is all for my interview with Ehud. Wasn't that wonderful? I hope that you are feeling a new, renewed inspiration if you were feeling down. And I hope that you are um, just feeling that power to get out there and let your light shine and to know that we are all here to back you up and support you as we try to, you know, influence change out here in the world. If this episode helped you, please consider sharing it with a friend. You can do that by telling them to go to foranimalsforearth.com slash podcast. At the top of that page, there's a link to all of the different streaming platforms so they can find the one that works for them. A reminder that today's show notes with links to all of the different things that Ehud talked about, as well as how to book Hacienda Rio Cote, go to foranimalsforearth.com slash podcast slash 43. Come back next week and join me. I'm going to have on Stephanie, who founded Scoop Marketplace. She's going to talk to us all about owning a bulk and zero waste store in Seattle. So I will see you then. Have a great week. Bye-bye.